Welcome to the Apple of Truth, our bi-weekly podcast where we nerd out about our favorite TV shows. Currently, we're covering every single episode of Good Omens, based on the book by Sir Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. And because we are who we are, we focus on details you didn't need, but for sure deserved. And I'm Vero. And today we're talking about Season 2, Chapter 2, The Clue, featuring the Minnesota Companion to Owls. So I googled A Companion to Owls. Yeah, and so did I. It makes no sense. I don't understand the title. Companion to Owls is an excerpt from Job. I did not find that. Okay, well, then it makes sense. Were you familiar with the story of Job before this episode? Yes, I have, because I know my biblical stories. However, I did Google it and it talks of stuff. But unfortunately, Christian sites, if you have an ad blocker turned on, they won't let you in. (laughs) (laughs) Because they make money off advertisements. So it's like, you have to turn on ads or subscribe. And I was like, I don't want to do any of those things. So I don't know. No problem. In Job 30.29, it says, I am a brother to dragons and a companion to owls. And depending on the version, it can also be, I'm a brother to jackals and a companion to ostriches. Which brings us to the ostriches that are mentioned later in the episode. That is fucking hilarious. See, everything is connected. Uh, Wow. Oh, yeah, everything's fucking connected. You have no idea. Wow. Yeah, okay. No, I completely missed that when I was trying to look it up. But I looked up so many other things. So I think we're even. I am excited. I am so confused still, but I'm also very hyped. (laughs) So we are having a very overexcited, confused. Yeah, it's called excitement to see another episode. In hopes that something's going to finally drop and you'll understand. Yes. Also, we'll see. Let's get into the summary I wrote. We learn a lot about the shared past between our husbands and also how their friendship got properly started. The miracle protecting Gabriel worked a little too well. And so in the present times, we'll have to get our unlikable couple into a couple. Also, Aziraphale is really turning into the dominant in this relationship. And I am here for it. I was gonna say you were gonna say that, and she did. (laughs) Are you really surprised? That's what she said. Mm -hmm. And that's what he said, because (laughs) our car. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh my god, that whole fucking thing. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Now, let's talk about the British word of the episode. I have oscillated between two. Oscillated? Wow. Okay. Nice. 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 Yes. Great use. Mm -hmm. Turns out that I have chosen the correct one because then I tried to Google the other one and it wouldn't work. So my British word of the episode is pash. I expected that. Okay, nice. I'm very happy I was right because I didn't pick it. I was slightly worried that you would pick it. That's why I was like, I'm going to research the second one as well just to make sure that we have a backup. But no, this word has many meanings. In this specific context and in British English slang, it means infatuation, which in the context makes complete sense. It's like crush. In Australia and New Zealand, it means kiss and cuddle or to kiss and cuddle. And in some interpretation, quite intensely. Okay. So third base. (laughs) Basically, like, quite aggressively kiss. Okay. Touching tonsils. Let's go with that. (laughs) 
there is another meaning in England, which is also a meaning that you can find in American English. And that is smush or a smushing blow. So okay. smush, smush. Hulk smush. Yes, exactly. So uh, Hulk push. <laughs> Okay. But also it can have another meaning in America and that is hurl or to hurl. So to throw up. Wow. Okay. So many, many different versions of this. Where this word comes from, it was an eye opener that I didn't see come in and I fucking should have. Do you have a guess? I actually know where it comes from. Or I think I know where it comes from. It comes from passion. Exactly. Yeah. Let's take a look at this. So it is short for passion. I know, I was so surprised. Which, but this actually is something interesting to me, which comes from old French passion, which obviously comes from Latin passionem. And that has to do originally with Christ's physical suffering. Yeah, the passion of the Christ. And then we have the passion of the Christ, which I never connected until this point. Wow, okay. Because it's something that in Czech, we have the envisioning of the play that, that shows the suffering of Christ, which is the way I know it. And in Czech, we call it Pasie, which also is the name you use in German, I believe. Yeah, Die Passion Christi. Yeah, Pasie Christa, which is new to me because I never understood why it's called Pasie, because passion or uh, anything like that, it, it has a very different translation in Czech. Yeah. So... You know, I never connected the two until I saw this little excerpt and woo, mind blown. Now, just to come back to Pash for one last moment, the shortening from passion has showed up in the early 1900s, more specifically between 1910, 1915. It has become very fashionable, very fash <laughs> to use Pash. But wow. these days, it is a quite rare usage. But it obviously makes sense because that's the time when Zerafel truly shone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So my British word of the episode is a word you definitely did not pick because it's actually written down. It is in the article that Zerafel reads about the pop in Edinburgh. And it's not actually British, it's Scottish. But that did not <laughs> stop me from picking it. British and Scottish is still equal? No. I mean... Yes, I know, but yes. no. So I apologize. I do not have any knowledge of Scottish accents, so I'm not going to try and butcher it. Or maybe I will. We'll, we'll see how this goes. So my British word of the episode is scunnered. So thankfully, due to the context, it was very easy for me to assume what it means because I thought it would mean annoyed. And no surprise, it means annoyed, discontented or bored. It can also mean nauseated or disgusted, especially when it comes to food or drink. Ah. And it's taken from the article about the jukebox that only plays one song. When the landlord talks about all of them getting a bit scunnered. <laughs> all of them are getting a bit scunnered. Your Scottish is much better than my Scottish. <gasps> and still, I do apologize to all Scottish speakers. I mean, Scottish accent speakers. Where does the word come from? It comes from the verb to scunner. And the verb is to be sick of, to dislike, to cause, to loathe or to feel disgust at. And obviously you can also turn it into a noun. And then it is an unreasonable or extreme dislike or prejudice to take or scunner to him. It is taken obviously from the Scots. And in Scottish apparently you could also spell it with a K instead of a C. And 
in old Scots, it's sconer with S-K-O-W-N-E-R. So that would mean that it's actually, it's not like scanner, it's more like sconer. Probably. And that translates to to shrink back or to flinch. Hmm. And that word or that verb came from Middle English scholarin to feel sick or disgusted. We do not know where it is actually from. One of the theories is that it is a frequentative of to shun. The first known use for the verb is in the 14th century and the noun was first documented circa 1520. Hmm. Ta-da! That is old. Well, well, well. We go into the facts and funs. Ooh, chunky one. That is a chunky one. Let's get into the facts and funs for episode two. And it's actually not that much because I kept most of it in the respective scenes where Mm -hmm. it belongs. But there were a few things I wanted to keep in. Those of you who listened to the facts and funds of episode one, <clears throat> that's totally in there since the very <laughs> beginning of, re- of recording it, a matter of life and death might sound familiar because there is a movie poster displayed in Maggie's record shop with the original release title called Stairway to Heaven. That movie had a reference in episode one. And just in case you don't know the movie, it's a British wartime aviator who cheats death, must argue for his life before a celestial court, hoping to prolong his fledgling romance with an American girl. Wow. It sounds familiar. I feel like that has been used multiple times. Yes. So here we go again. Once again, we have a Powell and Pressburger movie popping up. Obviously, it was a nice day. Read by Gabriel is the opening sentence of Good Omens. Amazon is being very funny because in their notes, when with the trivia, they say, we have no idea what this reference is. What? Yeah, I'm pretty sure they're being funny, funny. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, duh. Well. Okay. That's a good joke, to be honest. No clue. Well, <clears throat> And of course, I want to point it out just for the two people who live under a rock and are not aware of this, but Jope and Enan are played by Peter Davison and Ty Tennant. Peter Davison being the father-in-law of David Tennant and also a former doctor and Ty Tennant obviously being the son of David Tennant. Ta-da! And that concludes my amazing notes for episode two because there is so much freeze-framing happening inside the episode. And with the facts and funs out of our way, because they are hefty and they are many, let's get into Previously on Good Omens. Reunited with the ineffable husbands, we follow along their journey after the not the end of the world. Gabriel shows up on Azrafel's doorstep, seemingly with no memory, no power, or no clothes. Crowley <laughs> lives in his car with his plants. Azrafel is the master of forgiveness. Michael is up for a power grab in heaven, and Hell has a new representative on Earth. All in all, we've set up a lot of questions, and we met two new characters. Wow, you made me, like fucking laugh out loud several times. <laughs> I am impressed and I had not realized how much I missed your previously ons. Because when we did the movie recordings, the book recordings, there was none. So it's really nice to have them back. You make me blush. Good. We go into scene one and we start with 2500 BC. As I mentioned, I kept all the Amazon notes in the respective scenes. So I'm just going to get them out of the way, you know? Mm, go for it. Because there are three. 
Number one, the graphics used for the 2500 BC and the Land of Us card are inspired by the typefaces used on Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments, which is another movie, I assume. Did not research that one. Second, the spiked rays around Aziraphale's golden appearance are inspired by biblical paintings. Really? Obviously. This <laughs> section was used as a reference to get season two greenlit, a note from production designer Michael Telf. He says, I was influenced in my design from photos I took of beautiful ancient European religious iconic altar ephemera. I love the weight and shard quality of the golden rays. They all have a heaven-made, spiritually authentic feel about the way they were designed centuries ago. And maybe it's because I am European, but I consider this normal. Yeah. So this note is hilarious to me <laughs> because it's like, duh. Ah, Americans. Yeah. So thirdly, no goats were harmed in the filming of this scene, which is hilarious given later on we have the crows going, bah. Ah, uh, yeah. It's actually really funny. Did you notice, and this is, a, so I'm going to be doing this a lot because I actually decided to watch these episodes this time twice because, you know, you miss stuff when you watch it only once. When Crowley changes all the goats into birds, you can actually see birds in the background behind him when he's speaking, like flying away. No, I missed that. I only noticed it when I was watching it the second time because I was like, I knew, I already knew that they were going to be birds. And I was like, I need to look out if I can see the birds being left behind. And, you know, I saw them fly away. So this is actually a really nice detail that they done. So, no, I did not notice. I'm very happy you watched it twice. <laughs> Let's get into the scene. My very first comment is, that is something that he's wearing. <sighs> You mean the wig or the actual clothes? Everything. That is not my favorite version of Crowley, I have to say. Yeah, I, not to hate on their um, fashion choice, but yes, the wig, it looks like a blanket. It's so bad. Honest, I have to say not even the ropes of the angels are doing it for me. Everything looks so bad. It looks like it's not a great quality garment. It's so bad. So, yeah. And before we go into the goat killing, the goats are so cute. They're so tiny and so fluffy. I love them. They're mini goats. I love that they set it up in a way where Crowley is really, really serious. Yes. And maybe you should know that you have been abandoned. Your God has forsaken you. Pretty sure that is a quote. It seems like it gave me the feels. Then we have the cat and he's this silly little Crowley, you know, with a goat. <laughs> and it's just... Speaking of silly little idiots, when Aziraphale shows up with his at the golden rays and, and then he recognizes like, oh, it's you. And they're so adorable when they have this short interaction with the... I love that they are at this point still doing the I'm keeping up appearances. I act like an angel. I act like a demon. Yeah, because they're not friends yet. Well, and they haven't gotten to a point where they realize that nobody's fucking watching. Yeah. I feel like Crowley probably has realized. Crowley, yes. But, well, more, definitely. But Zeraphel, 100%, he's like, oh, no, I always have to be what I'm expected to be. I kind of expected one of us to go with avast as a word. <laughs> I did consider it, but no. No. Speaking of no, that is what Crowley says, because stop it. No, no, no. <laughs> what do you mean, no? I don't like these jokes. 
I fucking lost my shit. Like, I laughed out loud while sitting at my computer. Ah. So they got me. Like, episode one confused me more than it entertained me. But Mm -hmm. here they instantly have me. I am in it. I am with it. I am vibing. I am loving this. Despite the shitty outfits, I am here for it. And then when he gets the scroll and he rolls it out and it just goes over and under and across and everything. And then the end... (laughs) ends at Aziraphale's feet and he goes like should I summarize (gasps) hugs and kisses god which is literally XOXO yeah and also his summary is extremely accurate to the actual story of Job yeah so perfect summary hugs and kisses god seriously it's such a fucked up story the entire story of Job like later on I'm gonna go into it in a tiny detail but if you're not familiar it's it's worse than what we see in this episode. Much worse. Yeah. Because in the Bible, we don't get the husbands making it less bad. But it, it is, uh, like, it's the original with the, it's a bet. It's a fucking bet. Yes. It is. It it most certainly is. And then we have Zeraphel taking the scroll to heaven and have it checked. First we have pew, 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 pew. All the goats die, quotation marks. Oh my God. <laughs> Let's yeah. see, shall we? Pew, 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 pew. It's so amazing. Like, wow. I was so here for it. It was very good. And I love that there's like a whole like clouds of dust raising. So you don't actually see that they're turned into birds. Destruction. Destruction. It's like, oh, I loved it. I fucking love it. <laughs> because he's a demon. <laughs> I When he does that later on, I fucking lost my shit again. Okay, we go into <laughs> heaven. <laughs> Let's go to heaven, yeah. So Azrafel takes the contract or the scroll and brings it to heaven. Like, it's so nice of Crowley to let him have the scroll, you know? Let's face it, this is past the flood. This is past all of the meetings that they've had already. It's before the agreement. Oh yeah, it's long, long, long before the agreement. But it's past of them becoming more human-like and creating a certain relationship. So this makes complete sense to me. I mean, they are acquaintances at the very least. I'm pleasantly surprised by the continuity effort that is put into this. It's almost like maybe their backstory was fully established before season one happened. I know. Shocking. Shocking. And completely unexpected for everybody out there. Now, we have Muriel here uh, reading the contract in full. There was Muriel? That was Muriel, actually. (laughs) I missed that. It took me a second second watch until I realized that was Muriel. Okay, thank fuck you're watching those episodes twice. (laughs) Yeah, she goes, yeah, nothing, nothing important. His farm his camels his goats his oxen his children his geese and his what geese funny geese, birds what do you mean? Geese. yeah do you know the birds the birds and you know obviously it then they have to unroll the entire contract again and then michael and gabriel and by the way this is the moment when i realized remembered rather that gabriel's eyes are purple and then I was like I need to make sure to notice if Jim's eyes are purple and they are not you didn't realize that he no so Mm. you know they show up and Aziraphale goes through the scroll and he finds the... Oh, he gets it back. He gets everything back. But of course, being the sweetheart that he is, he thinks he gets back what he lost when in actuality the plan is to replace it. You don't get back what you lost, but instead you get double the amount new, which might be fine for your geese and your house and your farm. But when it comes to your children... 
Maybe not. Hey, you don't know. Maybe Job had a special relationship with his oxen. Wow. You don't know. Okay, uh, we're just gonna let it stand there. We have a reference, of course, with the you know how God likes sevens. And this is actually something that is included in the Amazon notes. I don't know how familiar you were with that. I knew that because of my goth satanist time study of the script. In Hebrew, the number seven has the same consonants as the word for completeness or wholeness. Mm. In the Bible, seven often symbolizes perfection. This is why in Genesis, God created heaven and earth in six days and rested on the seventh. The number seven appears over 700 times in the Bible. I did not know that and it is that is pretty incredible. So the whole seven thing is a thing and the reference here makes me feel that Neil and Terry both read more Bible-related stuff than one might have expected given how they lived their lives and how they write their books. So I did not expect both of them to be that deep in the Judeo-Christian lore, which of course I should know given the whole Lucifer shit and everything, but I don't know enough about Terry Pratchett, you know? I mean, we have learned quite a lot about the two of them when we are covering season one. If you are not our patron, we did uh, quite extended bonuses on uh, both of them. But from what we have learned, I am not surprised about that because they are both, specifically Terry, even though he didn't actually finish like high school, I believe, and he didn't go to uni, nothing. He was extremely well read. So the fact that both of them have like such a vast knowledge of these kind of things. I feel like it is, and even the way Terry writes and what he writes about, you need to have the knowledge of what is established in order to take it and create a new concept around it. So uh, this makes sense to me. So obviously the whole story that we're setting up here slightly different than what is actually in the Old Testament. So if you want to give it a read, there is a link for the story of Job in my notes. But we We'll talk about it when we go into the actual scene with Job and everything. I found it extremely adorable how long it takes Aziraphel to catch on with what the actual plan is. And him going, well, but his wife is like quite old and I don't really see her birthing seven more children. And also the, the current one are nice. And, uh, it's like, are they nice though? Baby. Well, the youngest is really nice. The other two are insufferable. We'll get to that. But it is actually so funny to me because this is the first moment where we have Gabriel say like, oh, I know what birth is. Yeah, because he was at the first one. Yeah, like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, you know, it's... Strictly speaking, Eve wasn't the first one, but Adam was birthed from the soil as was Lilith. And then Eve was birthed from Adam. Yes, but I would say that Adam and Lilith would be created while Eve was birthed. Debatable, but I can accept that, yes. I mean, strictly speaking, Eve was created from Adam's rib, but Gabriel takes it as a birth. He is very clueless when it comes to certain things. Oh, yeah. I mean, basically to everything, but yes. We pop over to the present day in London, and wow, Michael Sheen has so many facial expressions in season two. It started in episode one, obviously, but I don't know why, but I keep being surprised by how much face acting we get. And when we start this scene, we have a very good view of his face. 
And I can only say he looks very ponderous. That's a beautiful word for it. Yes, he does. He ponders strongly. So he looks ponderous to me. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. He is deeply in thought. Yes. And That's what I said. Uh, yeah. Jim <laughs> Jim sneaks up on him and Zerafel asks him to make noise when he moves around. So I would rather he put like a little bell on him, which is yes. definitely something. But also his clothing. Let's talk about his clothing. Exactly. I was gonna I was gonna just bring that up. So I was trying to figure out what his clothing reminds me of. He's wearing Aziraphale's clothing. He is kind of wearing Aziraphale's clothing, but the way... I don't think... Have we seen that knit vest on him before? No, but it is a style that... like. Oh, yeah. It is definitely his style. I mean, that makes sense. It also makes sense that the coat seems to be a little bit too small for him. Exactly. But, but... And I don't know how much of that is true and how much of that is just my headcanon. He turns around and when he starts putting the books away, I notice that there is something on his collar and it looked like a question mark. It's not. I freeze frame. But what okay. it started giving me a, a, a strong vibe of is of Dr. Seven's, Seventh Doctor's Sylvester McCoy outfit, who Ooh. has the, the white collar and a red question mark. And that would be the sweater vest as well. But also the coat is kind of like 10 vibe. And it's all giving me a little bit of five vibe, who is played by... Peter Davison, who obviously is going to be in this episode. So it's just everything that he's wearing is feels like a knockoff of a combination of different Doctor outfits. And I don't know if it's intentional. I can totally see where you're coming from. I have nothing to refute that. You're right, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't be surprising at all, especially since we know how much and who is involved in that. And we know that Neil loves the Doctor and he has been part of Doctor Who. We already have so many Doctor Who references in season one as well, so it would not be surprising. So speaking of Jim, his concept of sorting books by the first letter of the first line... I would lose my fucking shit if anyone did that to my books. I wouldn't want it in my library, but I think it's hella funny. So obviously he reads, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Did you know where this was taken from? Yes. I didn't because it's been <laughs> way too long for me since I last read Charles Dickens. But it is from A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. Thank you, Amazon, for supplying that information. Hmm. I did not read this, but it is sentence that I have heard a lot. So I do know its origin. Talk about Buddy Holly. Oh, are we going to talk about it now? Well, he sings it. Well, he sings it, but uh, we actually hear the song a little bit l later on. Okay. Okay. Uh, in the next scene, I was I was just confused because like this gets referenced as the Amazon information, obviously that this is every day by Buddy Holly what he sings, and I was very confused as to how is it possible that Gabriel knows this song because in season one it is made very explicit that all good musicians are down in hell, so Buddy Holly definitely not in heaven. So because I didn't know what was going to happen for me, it was absolutely impossible that Gabriel would know this song. I didn't look at it from that point of view, and you're not wrong. However, he had to have come from somewhere before he came to Azrafel, is my thinking. To be stuck in his brain, it must have had some kind of effect on him. So I was very confused because we made it so explicit last season that all the good musicians, all the great musicians are down in hell. And Buddy Holly definitely qualifies as one of the greats. So yes. not in heaven. No, no, no. Mm -hmm. So yeah. 
We go into the mystery alley once again and I get confirmation on my obsession with is Crowley living in his car? Yes, he is because he's actually sleeping in his car. I didn't realize they napped. I mean, I don't think they have to. I think they choose to sometimes. Okay, okay. You mean the same way they choose to get drunk sometimes? Yes. Yeah, valid. Valid. Okay, I can deal with that. Good. So he just needed to pass some time, so he decided to take a little nap. <laughs> Napperson. <laughs> wow. And Shex shows up. Now we get this thing, which honestly blew my mind, right? <laughs> so Shex, I know, and I keep saying this because there's so many things that are like, oh my God, this makes so much sense. So Shex sits in the car suddenly and she tells Crowley that he is in trouble and she mentions that a miracle of archangelic proportion has happened in the shop. Now, please, please, Gabriel's eyes are purple. Jim's eyes are not purple, but the smoke or whatever the, the light was that was coming out of Zarafel's bookshop was purple. Does that mean that he somehow transferred his power into the two of them when they're holding his hands in order to create the tiny little miracle so they use accidentally his power to create the miracle to hide him? I think because of the physical touching, they accidentally utilized his archangel power because he does not know anything. So he has no way of like keeping it in sight. Yes. And during the performing of a miracle, I'm pretty sure it was used. So that means, though, that he did not lose his power. It's still somewhere inside him. It's locked inside him, I would say. Which is what we get a short glimpse. We'll get to that in a moment. And there is more theories that I somewhat have. In that point. But okay. this was eye-opening to me. It feels like a big confirmation of we have no idea what's happening. There is no way we can even guess of the proportion of what is currently happening. It also makes Gabriel so much more dangerous to everyone. Because if Zerifel and Crowley can accidentally tap into this, someone who knows about this could actively tap into it and use it. And Archangel Power is dangerous. Because later on we get a reference that this was like, what was it? 25 Lazarus? Yeah, something like that. And... The, the rising of Lazarus was something Christ did. And so that is... Assumingly quite big, yeah. Basically, this is the absolute nuclear bomb taking away on Earth with no one knowing how to handle it. So, wahaha, dangerous. Mm -hmm. Something completely different that I zeroed in in this scene. And now for something completely different. Did you notice <laughs> that depending on the angle, Crowley's hair is different intensities of vibrancy red? No, I know this is your thing. I'm so obsessed with his hair. When Shax is outside of the car, Crowley's hair is bright, vibrant, hurts your eyes red. When she is sitting next to him and the camera is slightly behind Crowley, his hair is a muted red. Are you sure it's just not just like filters on the camera? I don't know, but his hair keeps changing the intensity of the vibrancy red visual. I don't have anything else except to note that Shax's behavior this episode is much less grating to me because it's not focused on as much. It's more a sight thing. And so I'm happy with it. She's there very, very limited time on screen. Still, the way it's dealt with, it's not like acknowledged. It's just a facial expression. And I can deal with that because her facial expression, like damn, the, that actress, her facial expression when Crowley replies with the seemingly non-caring sarcasm 
She does not know what the fuck to do with this. And it's hilarious to me. So I am on board now with Shax. I am here for it. So episode two is really like one win after the other for me. Very happy. You seem much more excited and full of energy. I was so muted in episode one, A, because I was fucking hungover after three days of partying and I'm getting fucking old. And two, episode one confused me more than it entertained me. I'm still confused, but I'm also fucking entertained. So I'm more balanced. I like that. I like that you're balanced. Let's balance through the opening song and we will come back to that, as we said. Yeah, the openings go until 10.23, but we talk about it in episode six, if we don't forget, because I think we forgot to talk about the opening credits for season one. Ah, well, summoning, summoning, summoning. Let's just keep reminding ourselves, maybe we should put a note into our Discord to don't forget to talk about opening don't song. Don't you forget about season one opening. It's not that song that's playing in the next, se- next scene, so no. We are balancing straight into the record shop. And, and this is something that Amazon told me, and unfortunately it is so vague underneath. You can hear that there is a song playing underneath. I didn't even hear that. I had to go like jump to the scene to figure out when this song supposedly plays. And I was like, no, I can't hear it. Unfortunately, Maggie won't shut the fuck up. So I couldn't hear the song that was actually playing. However, according to Amazon, and I trust Amazon in this, I'm not going to lie. It is Dusty Springfield's You Don't Need to Say You Love Me, which is... You don't have to say you love me just because I have... Love this song. Now I actually can hear... Like, yeah, okay. You don't have to say... Stay forever, I will understand. Believe me. As I said, I love the song. Nice, okay. Believe me. So Amazon provides a bit more information to this that originally it was an Italian song called Loce non vivo senza te. And Dusty Springfield was in the audience during a performance of the Italian song in 1965 at the Sanremo Festival. And she fell in love with the song and then... A year later, she made an English version of it. That makes sense to me. That used to happen quite a lot. Yeah. So, now you know. We are in a record shop and my first note for this is Aziraphale's singing is absolutely adorable. Yeah, it's cute. And I love that he remembers all the lyrics that Jim Gabe used. Jim Gabe? Jim Gabe, yeah, that's his new name. You and names, seriously. How? Okay. But even, like, he started with the... It's so adorable. He he needs to, like, you know, count himself in, which is... It's so good. So that made me absolutely fucking happy. But like you pointed out, because Maggie can't fucking shut up. I am so annoyed. I'm going to get my complaining out of the way here so I don't need to do it again. Why? Fucking why is Maggie crying over Nina? I harbored a crush for her so long and I finally found the courage. And then of course she has a partner and she doesn't fit the image I made up of her in my brain. (laughs) I want to fucking slap her. Yeah, well, that and the second thing that the fact that Zraphael considers giving her a miracle about that and that basically would mean that he would use a miracle to convince Nina to fall in love with Maggie against her will, even though she already has a... That's just so problematic. That should not work, actually, because free will. But then, of course, we have the whole Cupid shit with Angels of Love and everything. So who knows? And I mean, everything in this universe is already pretty fucked up. So maybe it probably would work. So... (gasps) 
I mean, yeah, no, just, just no, just. Also, no. I'm so upset because Maggie is being treated so nicely by Azurafel, and then he comes and he actually has like a request where she can like show her gratitude and how kind he is to her, and she she can actually pay him back in a way. And instead of focusing in on that, she makes it all about herself. Of course. Wow. Uh, I don't like her and ho- I really really hope that it's gonna change because I don't want to have a character that I don't like in one of my favorite shows so uh, yeah we'll see anyway she ends up being helpful actually in the end because she does recognize the song because she finally shows that she is actually good at something <laughs> And that is knowing music because she owns a record shop. That's so that makes complete sense. Also, she has an entire box full of the same song. So, And like specifically this song, which feels like coincidence. And as we all know, coincidences do not exist. Not inside a show, no. I was hilariously entertained with the The Resurrectionist 66 Goat Gate. Anyone need any more devil references on like this tiny piece of paper? Like, damn. <gasps> oh. I have actually written that down because I was like, this is so funny. Yeah, so I was I was very much here for it. Suddenly we get the heavenly trumpets. Yeah, don't you hear them? And it's like, obviously Maggie can't hear them. So Aziraphale has to rush back because, oh no, Jim is all by himself. But now I'm also calling him Jim. Fuck this. It's your fault. <laughs> You're bad influence. And so he makes it just in time to get there. And seriously, the way those three angels like approach the door and the corner, they are so not subtle. Like they don't care how anyone around them reacts to this. They don't blend in. They're very arrogant. Not surprising. Angels are dicks. We know this since ages ago. We know how uh, completely incompetent at blending in Gabriel was in season one. So this is. But they don't even try. They don't care at all. They have no regard for humanity and the normal world. I'd say at this point they are like you know openly admitting that they think of humans as scum that was you know whatever yeah yeah now overall in this scene my favorite thing is jim <laughs> yes john Han. because there is so many little details that that he does throughout the scene and actually his behavior makes me think that he might subconsciously know a little bit more than really? he consciously knows because the way he behaves around them he literally chooses these specific books he doesn't just grab random books he takes a time to find those specific books. It takes him a moment to find them in order to like stick them in their faces. So I wonder, except for the first one being what it is, like, is there a reason for the second two that he chooses? I mean, so the first one, obviously, that he uses is The Color of Magic by Terry Pratchett, which is the first of of the Discworld novels. Did you notice what the second book is that he uses? I think, I thought it looked like Witchfinder's Bible. Wicked Bible. And that is something Ah. that was referenced in Good Omens, the book. Because there, the Wicked Bible, printed by Barker and Lucas in 1632, in which the word not was omitted from the seventh commandment, making it thou shalt commit adultery. That is what he's using to try and swatch the fly. All right, all right. And the second book? There was a... I could not make it out. Yeah, no, yeah, I thought so. I figured that I don't have to spend too much time on that one. I cannot not say that the fact that the third angel makes the entrance accessible for her wheelchair that was so fucking amazing i am here for it exactly and no need to mention like oh what are you doing are you adding a ramp look at us being all bold but 
Also, I have to confess, I forgot for a moment why they would not recognize Gabriel. I was like, oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> fuck the miracle. Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oops. Sorry, sorry, sorry. The supercharged miracle, rather. Yeah. They are there and we get the whole reference with the miracle power was 25 Lazari. And so if you're not familiar, Lazari obviously refers to Lazarus. And that is the dude Jesus raised from the dead, basically. I think that considering this is Azrafel we are talking about, that was a relatively quick thinking when he starts pretending that the miracle was full up. Yeah, but he's really bad at lying and it only works because the angels are even worse than he is. Yeah, I mean, obviously, but I was actually surprised that he was able to come up with anything at this point. Only because he directly before that had the interaction with Maggie. So she's good for something. (laughs) That's the second thing she's good for. Yay! Yay! And none of them are her actions. No. Oh, well. So the angels leave. And they promise that they will verify the miracle the next day. So we have until tomorrow to make sure that they have a verifiable results. Yes. Which, no pressure, hon, you know. But before we can do anything else, we have Zerafel sit down with news clippings. And because I am back in my usual form, yes, I freeze-framed and yes, I typed out the entire article. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. Every day, it's getting closer. A strange phenomenon has got the locals of the Resurrectionist pub in Edinburgh scratching their hats and tapping their feet. For no matter what song they put on the pub's jukebox, it will only play one tune. Buddy Holly's Every Day. Proprietor Mr. Tullock is at a loss to explain it. I took over the Resurrectionist over 20 years ago and a jukebox was installed by the previous landlord and it has never given us a moment's trouble until recently. My regulars noticed that all the records seem to have changed into this Buddy Holly song. I'm quite partial to a bit of Buddy Holly myself, but everybody in the pub is getting a bit scared of it, to be honest with you. Asked what he thinks could possibly be behind the phenomenon, Mr. Tullock is completely stumped. Of course, I naturally assume that this was a prankster at work, but I've taken to sitting up all night and watching over the jukebox whenever I put new singles in. Something, something I couldn't make. Honestly, swear that no one... Something, something... Of the pop, and yet something I couldn't read every day. I've had the engineer out up team times, but he says that it's never been tampered with and can't explain it either. It's cost me a fortune in visits. News of the strange occurrence is beginning to spread, and Mr. Tullock admits that people are starting to turn up at the pub to check it out for themselves. I was worried at first that people would be put off. There is only so much of one song that you can couldn't read it, but we're getting folk coming, wanting to see for themselves. Maybe too much of a good thing is good for business. After all. And that is the entire news article. Well done. I'm proud of you. The other snippets are much harder to make out. But there is one that says, Scott's holiday mystery deepens. Hidden cameras show nothing. And then as you pointed out, (laughs) there are also clippings in various languages that I do not know. To wrap this scene up, there is one more thing I want to ask you. Yes, ask away. Who is he sketching? I am convinced that he is sketching Jim slash Gabe. Really? So when he brings the picture to the pub so he can ask if they saw this man. Ah, that makes a lot of sense, but it did not look like John Hamm to me. I'm sorry. I don't know if whoever did the likeness is not a great sketch artist, but I... I it looks know. like John Hamm. What are you talking no, about? No, it doesn't. It completely does. I had no idea who he was sketching. Well, th- maybe that's a you problem. Uh-huh. Dear listeners, please come to my help. Did you know who he was sketching? Yeah, and also 
I would not be completely surprised if this was actually Michael Sheen's work of art because... So I just insulted Michael Sheen. Great. Yeah, you just insulted Michael Sheen. Good luck. If I ever meet him, I'm going to be like, hey, I could totally not understand who you were sketching. I'm sorry, it was so bad. I mean, we don't know if it's actually him sketching it, but... I can just assume that his art was bad. Good. We go into the Dirty Donkey. Dirty Donkey. Which is a great name for a pub, really have to say. Funnily enough, apparently the Amazon subtitles are really, really bad because of the strike. Supposedly, in a reply to someone asking Neil somewhere on one of the socials, he replied that there was no one to proofread them. How weird and terrible. And and this is actually an, an unexpected angle that the strike has, unexpected effect that the strike has on, uh, on us. Because, so, when we go to the pub and Crowley orders for the two of them, he orders a sherry for, and the name that is displayed in the subtitles is wrong. Because I could not, like, I did not understand the reference, so I started searching for it. And that led me to a Reddit post where it was explained that Neil had answered this on one of his socials, yaddy, yaddy, yaddy. Because it says something about Brecknay, but it is Lady Brecknell. And Lady Brecknell, of course, is from the importance of being earnest. And she is considered to be the embodiment of conventional upper class Victorian respectability, which makes her a perfect reference for Aziraphale. Yeah, yeah, I see that. I was like, because I was like, this has to be a reference. This has to be a reference. But I don't know the name. So, yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'm I'm back on my usual level here. <laughs> I'm, I apologize for last episode. <laughs> You're stepping it up. You're stepping it yep, up. Yep. Now, when I was watching the first time, I as they were leaving the pub, my brain was like, wait, hold on a second. This pub is completely crowded. How did they manage to get a table? And then when I was rewatching it, I'm like, oh, obviously. Yeah, because magic. Yeah, classic. Yeah, Zerifel gets them a table. Did you see what was written on that newspaper? No, because, well, I mean, I saw it, but I didn't make a note of it because I was like, ah, I'm not going to take Lina's job. Good. So we see two newspapers in this scene. One, only we see a big, big headline in the background that is Nebraskan woman taught duck to play accordion. Which, ha ha ha, funny. That's the one that he is holding uh, the landlord person. Yes. Yeah, right. And the other one is... The one we see very, very shortly, and without Amazon's help, I would not have found all of this. Because the newspaper headline about Milton Keynes is a reference to Good Omens, the book. It meant that Crowley had been allowed to develop Manchester, while Aziraphale had a free hand in the whole of Shropshire. Crowley took Glasgow, Aziraphale had Edinburgh. Neither claimed any responsibility for Milton Keynes. Note for Americans and other aliens, Milton Keynes is a new city approximately half between London and Birmingham. It was built to be modern, efficient, healthy and all in all a pleasant place to live. Many Britons find this amusing, but both reported it as a success. And on the newspaper it literally says Milton Keynes, modern, efficient, healthy, pleasant place to live. (laughs) Amazing. Beautiful. Beautiful. And because we're already talking about bonus information, Crowley orders the sherry for Aziraphale, but he orders a whiskey for himself. And Amazon tells us that he is drinking a Talisker whiskey from the Isle of Skye, which of course is where director Douglas McKinnon is from and where Gaiman lives whenever he is in the UK. Lovely. Makes, again, complete sense. Love it. So, they sit down. They sit down. Well, first, Mr. Brown shows up and is annoying and in a way, and I hate him, and please do not come back. Yes, please do not (sighs) come back. Yeah. You're nearly as annoying as Maggie, and that's something. Exactly. But now the two of them, our husbands, sit down with their drinks. Yay. Also, Crowley comes up 
to the table with their drinks, both of their drinks. And the look that he gives to the guy. Wow. How dare you? Who are you? And how dare you sit down with my boyfriend? It's like, this is my husband, yeah. bitch. And this is my chair. Yeah. Who are we talking to, dear? Basically. That was such strong relationship energy, this scene. Like, damn. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes. Mm-hmm. And it gets even deepened by then later on talking about our car. and. But first, this is, of course, the moment where we have the conversation about we need to create a miracle without making a miracle because they are going to come back. So we need to somehow have the two of them fall in love. And Crowley, after being hesitant for a moment, has a few ideas. This is, of course, where we get your British word of the episode, a pash. And I was like, a pash? What? Oh, yeah, of course, passion. Yes, perfect. Pash. Crash. Also, there is my backup word that didn't pan out was a vavoom. Vavoom. Yes, perfect. The vavoom is, of course, a beautiful reference to horrible cinema. So do you know who Richard Curtis is? Yes. Okay. To those of you who don't know who Richard Curtis is, Richard Curtis is famous for movies such as Love Actually, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill and About Time. So really, really bad, kitschy movies that depict a very unhealthy kind of relationship and love. And many, many more of these movies. It's These are just the biggest ones. But there is so many. Oh, And I, first of all, I love that, that Crowley is up to date with somebody like that because this person is definitely in hell. Uh, yes. Or will be. But Richard Curtis actually gave permission for his name to be used in this because <laughs> Gaiman and Curtis are friends since 1988. They worked on a comic relief comic together and have been friends ever since. Interesting. Love that. Well, maybe he just writes what gets to be sold and let's face it, unfortunately, fuck patriarchy, this kind of stories sell. Yeah, and it's really, really bad. But of course, with the get them wet and stare into each other's eyes is a very classic trope. Also, I'm pretty sure in episode one, we had a poster for that somewhere. I, I feel like I talked about that, but maybe I imagined it. But this is definitely not the first time Four Weddings and a Funeral has come up. So, yeah. But yeah, cliches, movies, get them wet, have them look into each other's eyes. The boom, romance, which of course <laughs> leads to Aziraphale being like, well, if we're going to use fiction, and then he starts talking, and this is absolutely fucking hilarious, with Jane Austen. Because apparently the two of them had very different kinds of contact with good Jane. You know what this makes complete sense for me that she would be a spy and a criminal mastermind and stuff like that because she was very very special and very very ahead of her time let's put it that way amazon puts it this way jane austen may not have been a master spy but one of her antagonists wickham in pride and prejudice is said to be named after william wickham 1761 till 1870 the head of the british secret service around that time mm. so maybe she was what? who knows yep huh. but in between all of this we are starting to leave the pub And Aziraphale starts talking about the clue. And the fact Mm -hmm. that Crowley can hear the capitalized C of the clue is beautiful. They just know each other so well. I love them. They are adorable. Seriously. It's so cute. I love it so much. I I love how obviously out with the husbands we are. There is no hints. I mean, there were no like subtle hints in season one either. It was very straightforward. But... 
yeah, people were like, oh, no, they're just good friends. No, but as Aziraphale said, like, you go too fast for me. So in season one, Aziraphale wasn't ready, but ooh, daddy Aziraphale is ready and he is calling the shots now. Holy shit. Listen, listen, listen. There is a reason why I have the theory that they are shucked up together somewhere. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But before we can talk about that, we need to talk about them coming back into the bookshop, trying to question Gabriel a bit more. And once again, Aziraphale makes Crowley be the bad guy and ask more forcefully. Well, and this time we actually get the demon-like question that I expected in episode one. Demon-like asked, demon power, demon-powered question, let's put it that way. And it causes a god-like answer, because I'm pretty sure that is the voice of God mixed in with Gabriel's voice. It definitely is. So now the question is, does this mean that somehow, because we have noticed the absence of God in chapter one already. So does this mean that Gabriel is maybe still somewhere inside this forum, but also could mean that God is shushed away somewhere as well. So like maybe they are together somewhere. Okay, so God is omnipotent in this universe. So God is not shut away anywhere, period. That's not possible. But where is she? My very, very chaotic theory is she's bored. And she found that the happenings in season one were extremely entertaining to her. And so now she wants to be closer to everything. Because why did Gabriel, not knowing anything, show up at Aziraphale's doorstep? Because Aziraphale and Crowley are the entertaining parts. So basically, God is doing a chuck. Exactly. And I would not be surprised if she basically is doing a ride-along with Gabriel. Maybe, maybe. To experience the human part or whatever. But also, also, he says, I can't remember those things. Not anymore. My head isn't big enough. Not anymore. So does this mean that he is actually in a human vessel now? Yeah, basically, remember in Lucifer season six when God misplaces his powers and he's human? Basically like that. That's how I understand it. I was more thinking of how in Doctor Who, the doctor locks away his personality and he becomes a teacher. Yes, so this feels more like... But it's a fairly similar concept, except in uh, Lucifer... God is aware, he is aware of doing that after he's putting away his powers, while in Doctor Who, the Doctor forgets. No, he has to lock away the knowledge to be safe. Yeah, that's what I mean. Which feels more closer to what Gabe slash Jim is that's doing That's closer now. to the curse put on Cell in Stardust, where you're not even aware on that the curse was placed upon you. The Doctor was not allowed to realize that he had lost something, so... He lost everything around it as well that would remind him of it. Just like Cell is not aware of anything relating to the star, but God and Lucifer just misplaced it, but he is aware of everything around it. But God and Lucifer also is a non-game in creation, but a Joe Ildi creation. So, And if you are confused what the fuck we're referencing, listen to all of our other stuff. We covered yeah, all of first this. First of all, that. And second of all, watch all Doctor Who and watch all of Stardust and read all of Stardust. And watch all of Lucifer and then it will all make sense. And if you want to get really with the program, you also need to watch all of Buffy and all of Supernatural because those two shows also keep coming. Up, you're welcome. But so we have this sentence that obviously will show up in the next scene once again because it is a direct reference to what God said to Job. And they notice that, of course, because they're smart. Yes, 
they are smart. Also, this whole thing feels like a fuck up of a magnificent proportion. <laughs> and also the fact that every day is the song that keeps going back and is turning every into... It's getting closer. So something is getting closer and we don't know what. Ooh, you think the song is prophetic? Ooh, I like that. I like that. Yes, yes. Yes. Let's get into the flashback slash the Minnesota. The Minnesota. And now that you pointed out that the Companion of Owls is a reference to Job, it makes sense. Yay. <laughs> Good. Because I was like, Where, but where's the Minnesota? We haven't any extra material. There was no Minnesota. Oh, yeah. Okay. This <laughs> is the Minnesota. Okay. Into the Minnesota. That is actually... Nearly 18 minutes long, so yes, it counts as a minisode. I kept all of it together in one thing. Let me get the Amazon and general trivia out of the way. The book we're zooming in has pretty, pretty paintings. The biblical imagery is influenced by Harold Copping. Copping, 1863 till 1932, was a British illustrator who was famous for his biblical illustrations. The depiction of biblical times and the aesthetics of many biblical films are based on his illustrations, which he made before movies existed. <laughs> so, yay. Delightful. And then we have to talk about the whales, because whales are mentioned three times in the King James Bible, in Genesis, in Jonah and in Matthew. So, yeah, And for some reason, they want to include more whale trivia because Amazon writes, does anyone want one more whale trivia? Who are we kidding? We know you do. <laughs> In the biblical book of Job, there is a large sea monster named Leviathan, who may or may not be a whale. If you listened to last episode, you heard of Leviathan. The sea monster inspired the genus name for Inspired the Genos name, I don't know how to pronounce Latin words in English, I'm sorry. <laughs> For a 10 million year old extinct type of sperm whale named Liviathan Melville. And of course Melville is a play on the name of the dude who wrote Moby Dick because that is Herman Melville. Haha. And last but not least, we have to include Bildad. Because Bildad the Shuite is actually a character from the Book of Job, because he is actually one of Job's friends that comes to confront him about his whole situation. But it is also the name of one of the owners of the Pequot, Pequot in Herman Melville's Moby Dick. More whales. Ta-da! Yay! Okay. All the whales. All the whales. Good. We can go into the scene. First of all, let's repeat this, because I will always repeat this. This is Peter Davison! It's Peter Davison! And he's doing great. He is incredible. It took me a second to like connect the face to the name because I was like, why does he feel so madly familiar? And I was like, oh my God, of course. So yeah, I actually only connected it when Ty showed up. Oh wow, okay. Because I knew I knew him. I knew I knew the face. And I was like, he reminds me of the priest from uh, Father Ted. <laughs> Because of the hair. And yeah, the, the, yeah, the, I see where you're coming you from. You know, and that's just, I couldn't get out of my brain and I knew that's wrong. But I was just like, but that's not why he's familiar. It's like a different face. And then Ty shows up and then I remembered that when they were doing promo, somebody mentioned that all three generations of this family are included in this. And I just figured that 
it must be like you know my brain clicked like realizing that it's in the same moment it's in the same stories within the same episode as well so ah so peter davison is joke is joke i zeroed in a bit on the whole thing is called the destruction of job's barn in the picture where we zoom in and i'm like this is like the most harmless that happens to him like everything else is so much worse well he already has like the boils and stuff yeah, right but job throughout the entire thing he does not care that much about the things that actually happened to him and to the material things, but with the children, that is like... And I feel like that's the wife as well. In the story, he does not care as much about the wife. <laughs> no, no, he, not him, but her. She doesn't really care that much. She's also about... not that relevant in the story. Yeah. I mean, this is a today's version of yes. the events. So, you know, we're not talking about man, men by Bob men. Yeah. No, this is a much better version, of course. Obviously now we have Job, we have the wife, and then we have Crowley and Aziraphale showing up and they are debating. And Aziraphale points out that the children are innocent and Crowley like slaps back to that with, so were the goats and I am here for that. Yeah, because they're living beings. Also, they were... They were really innocent. The goats are probably more innocent than the fucking spoiled children. For sure. So, oh, yeah. that was a whole like a, a whole thing. So we have the whole discussion and they're having a moment where Zraphel is like, he is oozing the I know you, you wouldn't do this. While Crowley is like, oh, fuck off, you do not know me anymore. You maybe knew the old version of me, but that is no longer me. And they have this clash. And they are having this debate about with the going along with hell as far as he like, can do it. And Aziraphel, of course, doing everything that heaven wants him to do. And Crowley, once again, slapping back at him with like killing innocent children to win a bet with Satan. Like This is the whole scene. It's a lot. Aziraphale trying to do grandstanding. And Crowley, not so subtly and not so nicely, basically kicking him while he's already down. And I understand it because Aziraphale's holier-than-thou attitude is not in concert with how he's actually feeling. And it's not in concert with how the situation is. And it's just not right. So usually I'm not a fan of kicking people when they're down. I am a fan of it in this moment. So I'm very much here for all of this. He needs to go through these motions in order to realize that neither side is the good one. And he, Crowley needs him to go through these motions for his own selfish reasons. And that is... Because he doesn't want to be lonely anymore. Which is understandable, but sad. Yeah. Okay, we go back into the scene, which is, of course, the moment where one of the crows opens its beak and goes... <laughs> so, yeah. And this is great because this is the moment where uh, Zeraphel realizes that he was not wrong about Crowley. That he can read him, actually. That he's a good one. An actual good one. Not like heaven, but good, good. Yeah, and he has a, he has a little good chuckle about that to Crowley's displeasure. Mm hmm but they are like seriously i am i'm very very happy with all of this this is adorable i love it i love it i love it it is absolutely cute and they go inside of the mansion and they call in the children and then we meet the children they are terrible and we get to obviously see just to get this out of the way because we have see, said it already Enon is Titanens who is David's son yes and the youngest child of course is not annoying but also wants to be turned into a lizard which adorable as fuck but a blue one yes yeah, she asked can I be a blue one is it Jemima I have no idea 
Enon is the only name I remembered from the story, so that was the only name I remembered. I love that they introduce themselves as, oh, I am Enon, the son of Job, and I am blah, 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 the daughter of Job. And Jemima says, and I am Jemima, and I made this ball. She's so cute. Like, she's one of the children that I would not mind interacting with. So she's very entertaining. I'm not quite sure if Crowley turns the kids into lizards to keep them from being detected or to keep them from talking and being annoying or probably both. Porcadolos does. Very, very cute. And all of the three lizards sitting in the bowl. It's very sweet. Yeah. Now, of course, we come to a very, very important moment in Aziraphale's evolution. And while it is important that it happens, I am not happy how it happens and how it is depicted. Yep, I agree with you. I am surprised, but I'm happy that you're actually in agreement with me. So my main issue with this is that it is actually Crowley that tempts Xerophil into starting to consume human sustenance. See, this is not my main issue. This is, this is a first. So I would have very much preferred it if it was an actual choice of Aziraphale and not a try it, try it, try it. So that is that is step one that I have issue with. Because for me, it would have been nicer if Crowley enjoyed the wine so much that an Aziraphale would be curious and wants to try it, not the way this is done. And then, of course, the way he is eating is disgusting. I mean, in general, I have a hard time watching people when they eat. Like I'm Unless I'm drunk, then I don't mind. But <laughs> I don't like mouth sounds. I don't like food sounds. I don't like food all over. And he is like fully greasy in the face and everything. No. It feels like gluttony. Yes. Like a full-blown, I am currently sinning gluttony. This is a gorge fest. And yes, gluttony is, I did not find that word. But yes, this is a depiction of gluttony. And that is not a Xerophel. Yes, and I agree. And this is, it just doesn't feel like him. I love the beginning when he like tries to, you know, lick it a little bit first. I was on board until that point. And then, the, then he actually starts eating. And I was just like, I... I mean, I would even be okay with that part. But when we come back to it... Yeah, and he has the whole ginormous piece and mm, cramming his face into it. Oh, also a little funny thing that I've noticed in this scene that I was full on convinced that the ox in the background is a statue. It's not? No, it's a roast. It's a half-eaten roast that Zerafel has been gorging on the entire time. I thought it was a statue. I was, I'm fully with you. I thought it was a statue. Yeah, so because in this in the second part of the scene, you can see its ribs being like, you know, the, the meat of the ribs is taken off. I didn't see that. I, I totally did not see that. Wow. Okay, thank you for watching this twice. <laughs> I know I keep, re I keep repeating myself. So, but within all these food consuming, there is more conversation that is happening. And this is where lonely is being dropped. And this is the first time I was actively sad. I think, like proper sad when watching Good Omens because this must be, especially for Crowley, this must have been an absolutely horrifying existence. He started out as an angel who took tremendous joy in what he was tasked with and what he created. And then right when he creates it, he learns that it's going to be completely destroyed and snuffed out basically within the blink of an eye for an immortal. And so he does the only thing he can. He asks a question. And for asking, 
instance, he is being punished. He falls and he has to establish a space between the worst of the worst that ever got created. So he has to start to lie and cheat and probably do way more and way worse to come to the position he is now at, where he has the luxury of going along with hell as far as he feels okay with. But to get to this position must have been incredibly hard and painful. And now maintaining this position must take a tremendous amount of energy. And to do all of this completely by yourself, this was lonely from the second he asked the question. Because before he asked the question, he at least had a purpose. And sometimes Sometimes a purpose is enough and you don't need people or creatures. But the second he fell, he did not have a purpose anymore and he had no one on his side. So from that moment on, Crowley was completely alone. He was not just lonely, he was alone. And so as much as I dislike him literally tempting Aziraphale and prodding and poking and pointing out the obvious, it is so understandable because he was utterly alone. And this is his one chance to not be. So this made me so sad. I hate you. <laughs> I mean, I was sad watching after watching this episode, but now I'm sadder. You're welcome. <laughs> All right, so the house gets destroyed in the storm. We do not get destroyed because we are in the cellar. Yeah, storm cellar! <laughs> Fun fact. And that's how storm cellar was invented. <laughs> <laughs> nice. A little thing that I realized kind of throughout watching this. God tells Job in, the, in a moment that she can send a lightning to the ground and report back to her. Do you think she is... Not actually omnipotent and omniscient? Yes. So she is very well aware of what's happening there because we could see lightning coming around the mansion. So she was watching the destruction of the mansion. So I would assume... Good question. I would assume she knows that uh, Crowley and Azraphel are doing what they're doing and the children are still alive and stuff like that and they're fooling no, but everybody. That's, but that's the question. Does she? Because if she actually is omniscient why would she ever send lightning down to earth and have lightning report back to her there would be no need for it if she already knew everything so is she more like odin who sends out his uh ravens to tell him things and that which they don't tell him he won't know except sometimes he will because he has some other elective powers basically put skill points in the right skill trees <laughs> so no this is this is a really 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 good question i feel like we it's it's a good enough question to be put on the list oh yeah oh hell yeah is this god omniscient my only note on this conversation with God is God is utterly unlikable. <laughs> I love her, though. I feel like she's like, do you know what? You come to me with your silly problems. Like, I get that I caused you all those silly problems. But also, have you been there when I did this and that? Well, of course not. What kind of question is that? That is, seriously, it's like an abusive parent. It's like, be grateful for the moldy food I give you because did you work for it? No, because I'm three years old. You made me. <laughs> I'm your responsibility. You are choosing to make me sick, to make me suffer. And you have the audacity to ask me 
if I have done my part? If I was there before I existed? No, because I couldn't, because you had not made me. How dare you? This whole Job story, but this is not specific to this version of it, but in general, Job story is bullshit because he gets special treatment for no real reason. Let's face it. Yes, he is kind and he is amazing and he's a good person and whatever. No, he worships God. He's a devout man and God is happy about this. It is an original story. And this is why he treats him with kindness. And then the adversary, because Satan doesn't not not a thing, points out that probably the only reason that Job is such a devout man is because God is so kind to him. And the moment he stopped showing him kindness, all of this would turn. And this is how the bet gets started. This is basically fucking Faust. This is Mephisto. This is God and Mephisto talking in Faust about the take this soul, la 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 la. But the point is, right, Job didn't do anything wrong. He is by any accounts or by Bible accounts, a solid human being that is very devout to God and he has never doubted her. And even now he doesn't flinch. How does he deserve any of he that? He doesn't. Hap- that, and it's, that is, it's just, what I'm trying to say is like, it's just literally so, like that whole story, regardless which version you look at, is so fucked up. It's so fucked up. It's one of the most fucked up stories in the entire Bible. And the reason... <laughs> Well, there are too many others that are even more fucked up. So I I have a hard time with that statement, but it is one of the fucked up ones. Yes. (laughs) Yes. One of the fucked up ones. Okay, let's go with that. So basically choosing this specific story to show Zarephal's journey makes sense because he wouldn't be himself the way we know him today if he went along with it. He can't abide this. This story, like the story of Job, is very neatly contained within itself. It's very easily told. And it is very, very clearly cruel and needlessly cruel. So this story is fucking perfect to use within one episode to showcase how bad all of this is. And maybe maybe the story, if we look at it from our point of view for the show, maybe the story from God's perspective, the moral, wasn't supposed to be keep Job who he is or like keep Job suffering and whatever and hopefully he's gonna stay devoted it should have been angels get off your arses and maybe stop this injustice you know maybe it wasn't meant to be a test for Job but it was a test to for the angels. So, you know, and Zarephal is the only one who actually behaved like a, for the lack of a better word, humane person. And therefore, there is no punishment for his doings, even though very likely God knows what he's done. Unless she doesn't, which is a really good question that you raised. So we're going to pay attention to that. You know, so there's a few different ways to look at this. And even to me, if we go through the story of Good Omens, there is a reason, there must be a reason for Crowley and Zerifel to be able to be who they are for this long without specific, like any detection and anything like that. I feel like maybe she didn't see what they were doing now, but she has definitely seen some things that they've been doing and they've been left alone by her. So, you know, we're going to see how it goes. We we will not be able to solve this, but this is something that we're going to have to revisit in the summoning episode. How well they played around with this or if they actually dropped the ball on this. And then we're going to have more questions for Mr. Gaiman. Sir, please explain why logic error. We calculated and actually your math is wrong. Tristan is 16, (laughs) not 17. (laughs) Still one of my favorite moments. 
we have the whole the angels come down. It's like your children are dead, but you passed the test. We're so happy. Which also, no, his wife is still alive. So, I mean, the wife wasn't mentioned in this agreement. Yeah, I know. Also, she needs to birth him new children. I'm not sure if in the original story he gets a new wife who births him the new seven children. I it's been a while since I read it, so I was surprised that he got to keep the wife. <laughs> yeah, because they were like supposed to take everything from him, you know. Yeah, they show up like. Yay, you won. And they're very, very confused. And of course, Bill at the Shuite, who is a shoemaker and a midwife. And so obviously he's going to help with the birthing process because he knows how it works, just as Gabriel does, because he saw the first one. We have several miracles happen right now. Which obviously are not archangel quality, but good enough. So apparently pulling out three ribs from a human, you don't need much miracle power for. Okay, fine. Happy, happy there. Also, did you notice that Sittis reaches into Job's pants Yeah, first because when... she thinks children, you know? Like, it makes sense. Also, she really goes with the program much quicker than Job does. So I mean, she's a woman. She knows exactly. better. Exactly. So it's really, really nice. It's well done. And so the three children come back, which nobody bats an eye as it's just three and not the seven that were supposed. But But you have to start somewhere. And of course, there's the whole like, oh, but they're not babies. And it was like, well, was Eve a baby? Oh, no, she wasn't. (laughs) Like this was actually really, really smartly done. They can arrive at any size. Gabriel is so self-important. He's such a fucking idiot. Like, wow. Like, yeah, no, the self-importance of Gabriel in this moment really, really, really slapped me across the Saves face. Saves them? Well, Xerophil knows Gabriel, so it makes sense. This feels like something that him and Crowley have thought of, of a way to creating, in parentheses, the children. They talked about this while they were hiding in the cellar after Xerophil realized, I have to do something. Yes. So he also clearly must have created this plan with Crowley with Gabriel in mind. Yeah, because he knows him. So like the whole, I was there at the first birth, la 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 la. And so obviously this is the turning point, the final turning point for Xerophil. Because this is the moment he tells his first lie. And it's not just any lie. He says, I give you my word as an angel. So it is a very, very, very clear lie. Also, Inan is being a fucking numbnut. Yeah, because he's an idiot. And that doesn't change just because you were turned into a lizard and back again, you know? So, yeah. We zoom out of the book of Job and we are back into the bookshop. And because we now witness this interaction between Gabriel and Aziraphel, I realized how fucked the situation really must be for Aziraphel. Because Gabriel is basically his former boss and his former bully. And to have this live with you while he is completely defenseless and for lack of a better word, innocent. Because just because he is Gabriel, he right now is not Gabriel. And Jim has never done any mean thing to Aziraphale or to anyone. So the animosity that I would assume Aziraphale has towards Gabriel, he cannot really apply that to Jim. But because it's the same person, it is really hard not to. And yes, Aziraphale, as you said earlier, uh, he is the best when it comes to forgiveness. But this must be really hard for him. So I'm, I'm actually kind of impressed. Yeah, he has definitely grown as a human. Yes, he has grown human. <laughs> 
he says, I wonder, he's, he's asked by Jim if Jim is awful now. And he says, I hope not. And I feel like we all hope not. I'm really, really curious if Gabriel is going to like actively remember and understand his time as Jim. Whenever or if ever he gets back to be Gabriel. I think that comes down to if we are modeling it after Lucifer God or the Doctor or if we are doing any of the other things that we have seen or heard on a different TV shows. I'm very curious. Think of Curious. This is obviously where the whole pub thing comes up again. And so I post myself the question, are we going to the pub this episode or next episode? And the answer is, oh, we start going there. <laughs> But not yet. Soon. Soon, soon, soon. First, first we pop out to the straight. And we have not commented on this uh, last episode, so I need to comment on it now. David Tennant walking. Ah! Crowley Walk is back! No, it's better. I don't know how, but in season one, he was too much all limbs and angles and joints when moving. And now he has more swagger, more purpose, more presence. He is less scrawny when he does the Crowley Walk. I prefer this. I think he's more confident in it, I suppose. But also he may have become more confident in himself since him and Israfel are now like a real couple. I think the walk previously was a pretend confidence and the walk now is an actual confidence. Yes, it feels more natural. Yeah, that is a very good way to put it. Yes, yes. The one before was too over-exaggerated and now it feels real. And now we come to my favorite moment. Is the interaction with Nina? Oh no, I, I skipped over that. Sorry. I don't <laughs> I, I don't have any note. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot that was there. <laughs> yeah, no, they, there's a very short interaction with Nina on the street and Crowley clearly is fishing for information on her relationship with Maggie. Yeah, I don't think this is going to be an easy task for them, but also I feel like it's going to be a real funny episode next one because as Rafael is going to go to Scotland and Crowley is going to stay in the bookshop trying to match Maggie and Nina in his own old-fashioned fake romance movies that definitely work. Before we can talk about that, we need to talk about the car. Our car. Our car! I fucking lost it. I fucking lost it. I know I keep saying it, but seriously, you cannot deny that this is peak dominant Aziraphale. He does not take no for an answer. He is completely self-assured. He tells it how it will be. And all he says are facts. And Crowley basically is like, yes, sir. He doesn't say it, but that is basically his reaction. <laughs> uh, I didn't see this one as a dumb sub discussion. To me, it was just like, he needs the car. He will be going. And he has a list of reasons why, you know, like he has prepared for anything that Crowley could say to try to stop him. And after all, It is their car. Come on. They are a couple. They are husbands. They are together. It is what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. Mikasa is Sukasa. And since he lives in the bookshop and Crowley lives in the car and Crowley is always in the bookshop. Well, it begs the question. Does Zrafel know that Crowley actually lives in the car? I would be surprised if not. I am a bit meh about it because would he take away with his house? Yes, because... He's supposed to stay in the bookshop and watch Jim. They're basically, they're doing an apartment swap. 
<laughs> okay. Or, you know, boyfriend swap. If we think of the car as Crowley's boyfriend. No, the car is not. No, this is not fucking baby. Don't get like the ah oh, fucking car obsessions. Ugh. <laughs> I am here for Dom Zerafel. Seriously, this is... Yes, did not expect that. Here for it. Yay. We go into the bookshop and Gabriel is going through sorting his books. And obviously I did a freeze frame and I wrote down all the books on the shelf. Good. I only have the three that he quotes from, so... I could not make out three. Otherwise, I got all of them, except, of course, the red one, which is Good Omens, because we don't see the title. We only have the... when he reads it. See, if we look at it from the perspective of uh, universes and canon and stuff, there cannot be Good Omens book in existence because in theory, the Good Omens book is the predictions of Agnes Nutter, technically. It's not the same book, but like it would be too meta. It, it is a meta book for this universe. It cannot exist. Therefore, this is why Amazon doesn't know what book it is. And this is why it doesn't have a cover. Now I'm with you because I'm like, of course it can exist. Like, what? Okay, but this is a discussion for another time. So, the book's on the shelf. The first one I could not make out, sadly. The second one is No Woman, No Cry by Rita Marley, which is an autobiography about her life with Bob Marley. The next one is The Crow Wrote by Ian Banks, which is the first book that he reads from. The line is... It was the day my grandmother exploded. Very famous. It refers to what happened when she was cremated with her peacemaker still inside her. The novel describes Prentice McHone's preoccupation with death, sex, his relationship with his father, unrequited love, sibling rivalry, a missing uncle, cars, alcohol and other intoxicants, and God against the background of the Scottish landscape. It was adapted into a TV miniseries in 1996 and featured Peter Capaldi, another Scottish actor who played the 12th Doctor in Doctor Who. Ian Banks, the writer, is also a friend of Gaiman and McKinnon. The fourth book is The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime by Mark Haddon. I don't know anything about that book. Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. Love in the Time of Cholera by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Could not make out the next one, sorry. Then, of course, we have 1984 by George Orwell. Then we have The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler. We have The Bible. We have The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald, even though it only says Fitzgerald on the back. We have The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. Could not make out the penultimate book. And then we have Herzog by Saul Bellow. I would assume one of the books that is up there is probably going to be Pride and Prejudice as well. Because he reads from that as well. But those were the three books where I literally, I tried so hard, but yeah, no. So uh, second read, like you said, is Pride and Prejudice. And there is an Amazon note. The Good Omens Book Club. Gaiman and McKinnon would love for everyone to read these books, which is why I actually stopped and wrote down as many as possible. McKinnon put these books in alphabetical order, starting with their first sentence. Loving this. It's such a good trope. And you know what? It's a lot of classics that are on the shelf. And I am up for it. You know, like I've read already a bunch of them and not all of them, obviously. All right. That is all I have for the books and for that scene, to be honest, because that scene is just books. <laughs> yes, that scene is just books. One little note that I didn't actually write down, but I find it very charming when uh, Gabe has picked up the Pride and Prejudice and the first <laughs> sentence is, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a woman 
is will find herself in a need of a husband. No, a, ma- a man will. F- uh, no, the other way yeah, around. When so a man, a man has will find wealth, a- then he needs a wife. Oh, whatever that is. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever, I didn't write the whole quote, but it is a little toxic, a little no, fun. No, really? <laughs> I love that Gabe gives us like, whatever, love that. And then he picks up good omens and it literally says, in the beginning, it was a nice day. And there is this blissful smile that just goes over his face. It's just beautiful. And he says, that's more like it. That's more like it, yes. Very, like, very you have- cute. In fact... All of the days had been nice, because rain hadn't been invented yet. But there was a big stork. <laughs> I'm sorry. Speaking of the meeting of our ineffable husband. Speaking of rain coming, storm coming, sadness coming. Go back to the joke time. By the way, did you realize that the quote that we get on the matches in the last episode was also a joke? Yeah, because Leviathan. Yeah, yeah I know. So it's all Job related. I said it was Job last episode, even before we did the insert. And I said Leviathan this time in my other notes. So yes, everything's connected. But mostly in the scene, of course, we have Israfel being Israfel. Very dramatic. <gasps> Take me away. He is like, wow. He is so overdramatic. And, but he's happy that Crowley is the one that is being sent to collect him because it makes sense. It's very cute. And Crowley is like, what? what? I'm going to tell them. What do you mean? No, that now we are in it together. Yeah. So I kind of feel like no is Crowley's love language. <laughs> Saying no to Israfel. <laughs> Every time he says no, he actually means I love you. Yes. Kind of, yes. It feels like it, right? He just needs, yeah, yeah. He just needs to start saying, as you wish. Like, is Israfel saying, I'm going to take the car? And Crowley going, no. Of course he's going to take the car. So, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. They are so freaking adorable. And they sit down next to each other. And they have this beautiful conversation. And, of course, we get the callback to Crowley saying that he is a demon that goes along with hell as far as he can. And now Israfel will be an angel who goes along with heaven. As far as he can. Also, isn't it interesting that Zerafel is so, so sad and Crowley finds that a little funny? Like he laughs at the notion of Zerafel being a demon. Yeah, because it is ridiculous. Can you picture Zerafel down in hell? Oh, yeah. He is absolutely. And, you know, that's the thing. I, I genuinely feel like he is imagining Zerafel being around what he knows as demons. That who he has learned to live around And in the context of what you were talking about, his journey earlier, the idea of having Israfel smacked into that, it is truly hilarious. It's like, it's absurd, not hilarious. It is absolutely absurd. And because it is so absurd, I think that is the reason why Crowley is laughing. And also because he knows that Israfel will get over this quite quickly because he has already started to take pleasure in what the earthly delights have to offer. And now they can also be lonely together because it sounds lonely. Oh no, it's getting out of hand. Now there's two of them. Wow, wow. Way to kill the mood. Take it into your final thoughts, woman. The thing is, right, I am the kind of a person who makes stupid jokes when she's sad or emotional. And I feel sad. I feel sad and depressed. So, you know, there's obviously so much more questions that have arisen in this episode. We haven't moved the plot a lot 
We have spent majority of the episode back and forth and mainly back. But we have learned so much about our two little babies. Neil was definitely right when he said that this season is very much focused on the ineffable husbands. But watching the first time as Raphael starts moving towards the human middle ground and having Crowley be there for him, it is something. And I really sure hope that the next episode is more optimistic than that. Because so far, it's a very bleak outlook that Zerfel had at the end. And we know it will get better. But Do we? right now, I'm sad. Do we? Shut up. Shut up. Do we? <laughs> wow. I did not expect to get so much more range on both Zerfel and Crowley acting-wise. I am not surprised that they are more central to the story this time around. But I did not expect for them to get this much opportunity to shine and to evolve. Second. This season feels incredibly different to me compared to season one. Not just regarding our husbands, but also when it comes to directing and general storytelling. Somehow the entire vibe is different. And I can't really place my finger on, so we're gonna keep an eye on that. Third, I am not a fan of the supposed side story with Nina and Maggie. I really do not care about them and I do not want to witness a supposed romance with those two. Fuck that. Finally, more. I cannot remember the last time I didn't instantly binge the entire season when something came out. So this is very weird. This is very unusual and I am not sure I like this. <laughs> But thankfully, we have adjusted our schedule, which means I have to watch the episodes quicker. So it's almost like pinching. Yay! And with this, we say thank you for listening. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us as The Apple of Truth on Twitter and Instagram. We will keep you updated if and when Twitter crashes and burns. You can also send us your comments and complaints to goodomens at taot-podcast.com. If you want to get that sweet, sweet extra content, early episode release and more, like six seasons of another show more, head to patreon.com slash taotpodcast. And if you like what you hear, please do write us a positive iTunes review. They help a ridiculous amount. And don't forget to pester all your friends about us. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Bye.